and welcome back to Literally Literary. If this is your first time joining us, please be sure and check out our previous episodes. This episode, we will continue our discussion on Everything Begins and Ends at the Kentucky Club by Ben Sines. My name is Vanessa, and this is Literally Literary, which is brought to you by the Mellon Foundation through the Humanities Collaborative at EPCC and UTEP. Welcome back, everyone. Um, last time we um, were talking about um, Ben's book and... Um, the, the setting and some of the themes uh, and started talking a little bit about the first story. Um, we didn't touch too much on it, um, and especially when it comes to the religious angle or rather what it has to say about religion. Uh, and so if it's all right with you guys, I wanted to start with um, the passage on 32, um, the funeral scene. And funerals are one of the common settings along with the, the Kentucky Club in, in this collection. And I think uh, Ben is really trying to get at um, how we all process death and trauma and um, the rituals, I think, is another important thing that we didn't mention last time. Uh, what, what is the meaning of a ritual? What is it tied to? Uh, what's the value and symbolism behind it? Uh, so in the first story, he has gone to be with the woman. Um, the, the passage reads, The funeral was at the cathedral where his uncle had attended mass for over 50 years. He had married his wife there, had baptized his children there, had marked and measured his life in that sacred building. It did not matter that neither Javier nor I were believers. How could we believe in a church that did not believe in us? either separately or together. Still, that church and its rituals were a part of us, our bodies, if not our hearts, were familiar with the medieval chants. There was a strange and intimate comfort there. Um, this passage, strong line, really struck me because of, um, um, you know, they're able to look beyond the, their own atheism and still find a, a sense of belonging in, in this kind of um, of place, and um, and uh, obviously, of course, it's a, it's a it's a mournful um, occasion. But um, you know, the fact that they are both homosexual, and that in under Roman Catholicism, you know, that that's one of the the big taboos. Um, I think is. Um, worth underlining and um as as it says there you know there's that emphasis there on like um rituals right and um you know despite the fact that they don't belong there under the, the holy father um they still feel um because of the rituals that they it's inextricable right that they're gonna be part of it no matter what even if they are rejected um, and isolated because of it. Uh, and I think that says a lot about the complicated relationships we all have to religiosity and, and um, you know, the, the sense of communion that comes from these kinds of uh, gatherings, uh, church, and, um, you know, in particular, the, the cathedral, right, which is kind of, uh, it, it's the, a grand building and here in El Paso and um, downtown, and um, um, I think it also says a, a lot about um, how th 
they've already in some ways have evolved uh, to beyond, you know, a pettiness that they can have toward, you know, because it's very easy, I think, to reject the, the, um, the relationship to the religion altogether if, if they're not believers. But um, yeah. it says a lot about their humility and uh, their virtue that, you know, that they look beyond that kind of um, pettiness. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually, I mean, I, I don't even know if, if pity is maybe not the right word because it says a lot to be rejected by your, by what you are, your sexual orientation. Well, yeah, he, I know? mean, he acknowledges it. So there's, yeah. I mean, there's that aspect. Um, I, I think it also kind of points to just how um, intertwined religion is as part of the culture here on the border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're not religious, I think we've a lot of us have grown up with that, you know, being raised Catholic or, or, or whatever. And and that's why I think with going to church service, same in my own experience, right? Same, the same way, you know, it's a great way of describing it, a strange and intimate comfort. You know, it does remind me of, of going to mass and, and going through um, the different stages from, you know, comfort to confirmation. And even though I, I'm not as involved... Church, um, funerals still happen, and that's brings me back to the church, and, and in a very similar sense, thinking about this kind of comfort. But here we are, and still kind of remembering some of the prayers, like the the movements, the you know, the ritual of it all, shaking hands and mm-hmm. all that, mm-hmm. saying your grace, you know. Um, yeah, that's yeah. very much uh, still pretty prevalent here in the, in the cities. And I think the fact that the rituals, I think to me, the way I, I interpret that, I don't know what you guys think, is that Ben is trying to say that, well, the narrator, I should say, is trying to say that um, uh, rituals are universal, that even if you yourself are an atheist, uh, when it comes to rituals, as long as you partake of it, you don't have to believe mm-hmm. because they don't, right? And they still find that solace in, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Because of the ritual, and yeah. I think I think to me, um, you know, I wish I could ask him if he was here, uh, but you know, I think Ben is trying to say that um, this is what makes pe- us human. Uh, you know, ho- Homo sapiens is that we have rituals, unlike other species that you mm-hmm. know they communicate and they're intelligent too. But I think rituals is really what makes us unique as human beings. Um, so. Uh, that that's why I I find this a really strong moment for the the yeah. f- first the opening story. Yeah, and in, and actually in this moment in a, in a book that's filled with tragedy, and death and and trauma, pain, hurt, rage, this is a moment of of of, of solace. Like you said, the the ritual, the way, the way it brings us together, and it's also it kind of leads to this moment of of love, right? Where mm. where Carlos, right. <laughs> Realizes he's in love with Javier when he's when he's sobbing. How do you say it? I could feel my heart leaping towards him in the same way that a believer's heart might leap towards the face of God. I actually mentioned that in the previous episode. Now that I'm reading it out loud, <laughs> but I mean, I think that what that kind of leads to is this um, throughout the book and in here, of course, as well. In this in this particular story, Ben starts to question what it means to be a man and and masculinity. We'll leave that open because I know other stories bring that up as well. Yeah, but. And, and, and that the mourners, you know, as a ritual, right, as a funeral, I mean, I'm sure, of course, you all have been to one, but, you know, funerals, um, th- this kind of funeral is um, unique in that 
uh, they're actually there for more for Javier than his uncle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that shows the, the influence that he has in his community amongst his friends. And, and um, you know, it's that kind of occasion where he gets end up getting more attention, mm-hmm. you know, and because they, they know that it's it's they want to be there for him. Um, so to me, that was the standout moment of the first story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys had any other ones from the first one uh, before we dive into the second one, which is Art of Translation. I had a paragraph on 34 that I really, really liked. It's the first, well, I guess the second one, I guess, um, where he's talking about not really analyzing each other. They just learn to read each other with their actions and how they... (laughs) I highlighted that one as well. Yeah, that one. I really like that one because I'm not very much a person that's going to ask you your favorite things. I'm going to learn about these favorite things through your actions and what you tell me. So I, I really like that one. So it says... We tried to learn about each other without explaining ourselves too much. We became each other's favorite books. We were obsessed with reading each other. And so I felt like that was really strong and like a really beautiful way to describe that. Hmm. How do you you think then that relationship develops for them too? You know, considering um, one of the main, well, I would say possibly the main conflict in the story, at least to me, is the you know, that uh, Javier still has that attachment to Juarez. And, you know, there's that line about that is his love for Juarez outweigh. That was actually one of my strong lines. Yeah? Yeah, it's uh, page 36. It's actually at the end of a section, and that's, I highlighted for that very reason, you know. um, He said, he writes, I was not his only love and never would be. Perhaps he loved Juarez more than he loved me, but he was right about me. I was not a jealous man. He could love his Wattis, and he could love me too. That was the way it would be. We can live this way mm-hmm. forever, I said. It was more heaven than I deserved. Um, that's, you know, a strong note upon upon their their relationship. And, and one of the things that it draws here is the parallels of the two cities, Again, you know, again. And I think uh, Carlos, Carlos's depiction of it, you know, where... I think he shows genuine concern for Javier and he wants him to, to move to El Paso, but obviously he can't do that because his life is there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, uh, in, in many ways, maybe privilege in being able to just uproot yourself and your family and, and, and to just move cities and that you see that in Javier where he can't just leave. And that through that little love relationship, you can get kind of the bigger sense, you know, of how rooted we are. Yeah, um, and the, I, I, I also had uh, that passage labeled, and I put in, um, you know, the, I, I, the um, love is also w- the way that we conceive of love. There's different versions of love in these collections. And mm-hmm. to me, I, I see that as like, you know, even though, of course, it, it's a city that he's in love with, like, like it's a form of non-monogamy, if you think about it, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he's able to accept that... Um, that Javier is, is, is going to have that attachment to Juarez regardless and that he's not going to be able to change his mind about it, but he's still willing to accept them be, yeah. because of it or, or rather despite it. Yeah. Um, 
so I, I think um, it, it also shows, you know, um, uh, his both of their, well, I think, you know, his, his maturity, you know, and being able to just accept that, you know, because I think it does take a lot uh, of someone to be able to accept that someone is always going to have that attachment that is uh, injurious to them and the relationship as, as we mm -hmm. come to find, of course, you know, with what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, Vanessa, did you have any thoughts on, on how that relationship ends up developing? Um, um, well, with like that passage too, um, I think it's important to like realize that they're like, he's able to compromise. Like he's not going to be like, it's me or what is mm -hmm. type of yeah. thing. And mm -hmm. I think that's, Something that a lot of people don't understand, like I don't even think that ever works in any relationship either. Yeah, or mm. it, it's kind of almost. It's like kind of like a toxic relationship. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, like, to see it written down here and not represented in that toxic way, I think that was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a nice representation of love <laughs> there. Yeah. Um. And um, you know that th this is always a hard book for me to read again. Uh, I mean, a collection because, of course, as you mentioned, right, it's just rife with tragedy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as beautiful as their love is and it, and it blossoms, you know, like a rose, um, of course, uh, it doesn't end well for for um, for Javier. Mm -hmm. And so the, the scene on, on page 40, I think, is um, important, too, because, um, you know, it says here uh, he's finding out, you know, after the fact, uh, for Magda, um, some men, they had rifles, or maybe not rifles, weapons. Uh, we heard them. It wasn't dark yet. They were dragging Javier out into the streets. They were rounding up all the men from the neighborhood. Uh, they must have been looking for someone in particular, so they took him all. Um, and so, the, you know, it's it's what we call what we, what we call this in what is you know when this was happening, it's we call them like levantones, where you know you could be just uh, in a stoplight and they all of a sudden you know cut you off and they got guns or whatever, and so you have to you know um, comply, and uh, so this is what ends up happening to him, and you know it, it's left unexplained uh, why this happens. You know, it seems like this is just wrong place, wrong time kind of mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, but I think it's also fair to speculate that as we had, I think, talked about outside the recording that maybe, you know, he was taken because of his uh, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of, he was targeted because of it because there's a lot of homophobia in Mexico as there is in the U.S. Uh, and so after this, he, you know... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Juan Carlos, of course, you know, looks everywhere. Uh, he finds no answers. No one is able to tell him, not, not newspapers, lawyers, human rights activists, not Congress. And he asks, you know, uh, I thought of looking in the desert, but where in the desert would I look? Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, he has to find closure with that. I think that's another of the big... Um, ideas in this collection is, you know, on 40, 43, where we get, of course, the, the, the titular line of the, of the, of the first story, which is he has come to be with the woman, with all the nameless women who have been buried in the desert. I nodded and thought he has gone to be with his mother. 
and so this is uh, how that first one ends, mm-hmm. where um, the desert really, as a setting as well here in this first one at least, is um, a place where unimaginable crimes have been committed <clears throat> against women through femicides. And in this case, uh, you know, for Javier, um, because of the of the dark war, dark war violence and also because of corruption in some cases, mm-hmm. he's just another one there who ends up buried in that desert. And, you know, many, of course, uh, to this day, I think, haven't even been found. You know, there's a lot of missing. Yeah, there's a lot of hopelessness in that, too talking about where would I even look in the desert and also talking to people, speaking of the corruption, talking to the police, to, to anyone mm-hmm. and, and not, you know, not being heard. He said it felt like being invisible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that speaking of the desert, you know, I think that really, again, ties in, in a several, including the next story, right? The other translation. I know our, our main character has his own kind of relationship with, with the desert. Right. So what do you yeah. want to say about yeah, that um, one? So the second story, order translation, uh, to me also jumps out because um, because of what's currently going on, and so I think in some ways it's prescient, you know, because we mentioned this book was published back in twenty twelve, uh, and so th- there's a passage on page um, fifty two, where um, you know all we know so far is that Nick was jumped, and. Um, here, though, there's, you know, the reporters that come in, right? And so the press does have a role here. And, um, you know, so, so in, the, in the italicized portion of that, uh, to me, it just seems like these are questions that are being asked by the people, right, and the press mm-hmm. uh, that they want answered. And so um, it's more victim-blaming, and I think we've talked about that before. Um, but the questions are... Wasn't it true that the boy had done something to those other boys? He must have provoked them, goaded them into attacking him. Surely the boys must have had a reason. Couldn't it be true that the boy wanted to start some kind of race war? Did the boys have did the boy have papers? What was an illegal doing at a public university? Uh, and so even nowadays, well, especially I think nowadays, we have a lot of hatred towards uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, in this case a student. And this is also a story that's set in, in the 80s and in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I think uh, as a setting, um, it's it's one of those stories where um, uh, you look back, you know, 1985, you know, that's a year that I was born, right? And to think that something like this happened back then, this kind of hate crime, right, which it clearly was, um, is is um, not something that I, I ever conceived of back then. I do conceive of it now. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting, you know, and I wonder why Ben chose to kind of look 30 years ago uh, to write about the story of Nick in this kind of way in, the, in, in Albuquerque uh, of all places. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- one answer to that would be, well, Albuquerque is a white majority city. Um, but, um, you know, the, the idea that he's targeted simply because he looks someone who could be undocumented, right, is another reason why. To me, this, this is a very important story to tell 
how the press all of a sudden, you know, like we talked about with Black Lives Matters, right? They start blaming the the victim mm -hmm. uh, and assuming things about the victim, you know, that they provoked, that right. he provoked why, them. Why did, you know, did he want to start a race war? And I think uh, his sister handled it quite uh, quite perfectly, right? That's actually on the previous page when there's reporters reporters at their house and the mother is upset, but it's his sister Angela that runs out and grabs the reporter's microphone and just throws it. And, and, and you, know, she, you know, you do see a lot of rage. Um, not misplaced, I would say, either. You know, her, how did she say it? Let's, let's go 49. No, 50. 51. One. Yeah, 51. <clears throat> she says, uh, like, kind of towards the middle middle of the, that, the page, that paragraph, he says, I stood in quiet awe of my sister Angela, who stormed out into the yard, grabbed the reporter's microphone, looked into the camera and yelled, someone used my brother's back like a goddamn chalkboard. You want to know what they wrote on his back? Is that what you want? You want to know how we feel? We fucking feel like dancing. She tossed the microphone into the neighbor's yard and stared at them until they drove away. I think that's uh, quite appropriately placed rage. There's a lot of that in in these stories, but here you kind of, see that you know and also i think it never even says what they write on his back right but mm -hmm. i think you know even like at the end of this section kind of in the middle nice use of white space he's like he's always been obsessed with language but now he's kind of like it's falling apart from and so he looks up the word illegal which mm -hmm. makes me think maybe that might be what was was written it's never never said but yeah or some mm -hmm. other slur yeah I, yeah and I guess that's kind of like almost like the horror trope of instead of like revealing the monster, you it leaves it up to the imagination. Mm -hmm. It could be like any any of these. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the the three white boys themselves, I mean, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Sonny's Blues because mm -hmm. of how that trauma that Nick is trying to process, ultimately um, they become a kind of um, nebulous, you know, force, right? Like they don't have names. And they just happen to be the the representing hate, mm -hmm. and on uh, on fifty five, you know his hate that he feels towards them, right? And it's kind of like, um, of course, solely justified, like you were saying, the rage that his sister also felt. Uh, it's it says their hate sat inside me like a bird who was nesting, waiting mm -hmm. for her eggs to hatch. And I don't know if you all noticed, but there was uh, there was other. Uh, bird symbolism in the in the collection throughout, I think, mm -hmm. that was represented different ways, and brother in our language is another one. Um, but it's it's um, it, to to me that that's what kind of stood out about this uh, second one is um, the the incident itself and um, how the press kind of right away jumps at it, you know, and. Um, Ultimately, I think how he's able to process the scars, you know, the scars on his back is obviously something he's very sensitive about. Mm -hmm. Vanessa, was there a line from this one that stood out to you? So I noticed that this one talks about the meaning of his last name. Mm. And I like the meanings of names, so we're <laughs> going to talk about that some more. Yeah. Um, so his last name is Guerra, which means war. Um, and so on page 46, he kind of questions that meaning 
a little bit. So it says, And wasn't their last name Guerra? And didn't that name mean war? And didn't that mean that they were born to fight? But being born to fight did not mean that they were born to win the battles they fought. And so I really like that paragraph um, because he's kind of like, this is what my name means, but that doesn't always mean I'm going to win every battle. Yeah, I think um, it, it has a nice uh, book into it, you know, and uh, his, he's like you had mentioned as well, Richie, that he has of, he's fascinated with language and, you know, mm-hmm. he's always looking up words, right? And so it, it his name in particular, uh, of course, is, is ironic, right? And, um, and yet uh, on the, I don't know if, if I'm jumping ahead here, but on 66 at the end, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of uh, makes, comes full circle, um, you know, and this is how I interpret this one where um, it's his uh, way of processing this hate crime that has occurred. And it says, um, I told myself that the scars on my back had always been there. They were nothing more than birthmarks. I thought of that night. And he goes on, what I should have done when they were holding me down, what I should have done, what I should have done, I should have looked at my attackers and told them I had been waiting for them. I should have looked them all in the eyes and told them I knew their hate, understood it, embraced its awful necessity. I should have offered up my body as a sacrifice to their cruel and hungry gods. It was a war after all, and sacrifices were necessary in a war though I had never acknowledged that the war existed. War, guerra, that was me. That was my name. I like how this is, uh, to me, uh, he's puts himself as, as a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And then also um, this this idea that he's kind of remaking his, his, his own self, mm-hmm. his body, the way that he um, is now thinking of the scars there, right, are not as like a symbol of, of hate, but rather as something that has always been there that he was born with. And I think um, to me that this speaks to the human condition, right, that we are meant to suffer and there's no way going around it. Um, and, uh, you know, as he says, you know, what really stands out from that whole paragraph is um, it's awful necessity. Mm. I think to me this is a moment where Ben is kind of, telling us about life itself, right? I mean, you had mentioned Richie as well that there's a lot of moments in, in the text where it, it's um, the cosmic perspective of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben definitely does that. He has these lines. And uh, <clears throat> even though you kind of fast-forwarded to the the end of that, this is what he should have done, I think it, you know, um, something that Ben does throughout in his other stories is is talk about the desert right we've already mentioned that for the for the previous story yeah but on, on page 56 he's talking about how, how he sees the desert now um, when he's when he's running and he imagines the, the boys now living in the desert um how does he say it I walked past all the homes and stood at the edge of the desert I looked at the mesquites and chamisos and the cacti they always caught me there in the dream caught me in the desert. They lived there, those boys, the three of them, the white boys who had hurt me. They lived in all the deserts of the earth, death. That was the new word for desert. So that's where they lived now in every desert and every dream I would ever have. I knew they would find me someday, catch me, cut me up again. I turned my back on the desert and I once loved and ran home. So that's 
kind of thinking about, uh, I was tying that passage into the previous one when we were talking about uh, Juan Carlos going out to the desert trying to find mm-hmm. and just kind of what death is, just this kind of like fact of life, mm-hmm. right? Here I'm drawing, drawing this parallel to death, um, but accepting it in a way, right, at the end. Yeah, in the end, and um, um, and and I think you know the just again the the trauma and how he ties it into the desert, you know, and um, it, it's about making sense of something that in some ways that does is senseless, right? It's yeah. this kind of hatred that he he is very he's very sensitive mm-hmm. as as a male boy. Um, as a boy and um and even his mom right regards that you know no se te lo bonito which to me i found you know just speaking to his his uh, sensitivity and his role in the family you know angela you mentioned is much more um aggressive right and rightfully so of course in that yeah. moment but yeah. um I, I i think um uh, even with with Sylvia, right, where he's he doesn't want to show those scars to her, mm-hmm. uh, speaks to how uh, Ben is, you know, really interrogating what what is masculinity, right? What, yeah. what does it mean to be? But a that's man? a hardcore vulnerability that he's not ready for. Yeah, because yeah. um, he's still trying to figure it out himself, essentially. Yeah, it's a good one. So uh, the third story, that's <laughs> your uh, that's your uh, your story, man. Yeah, this is my my. Um, <laughs> My sopa de fido right here. Um, you know, I, I always um, I always um, like this story not because it presents a sympathetic view of, you know, someone who is a connect with the drug dealers, uh, drug cartels, um, but rather because it's a beautiful story about a father and son. And um, I personally relate a lot to this kind of father, like the whole tough love thing. You know, that's that's how I was raised. And, um, you know, I think a lot of lot of Mexican boys were raised like this. I mean, I don't want to, you know, make a big generalization, but I think it's common for um, father fathers in Mexican families to be this kind of way. Um, and... Uh, so this is a story where, um, um, you know, a, a boy moves in with his dad after having been living with his mother in Juarez. So he moves to El Paso. He goes to Cathedral. Um, and uh, his father, he doesn't know much about him, you know. Um, so, but his father right away makes him, well, doesn't actually make him, but, you know, has some, some ground rules. Um, and, uh, our character here is, is the kind of, of protagonist who is very responsible, you know, even though he's kind of, Max is kind of just dumped here, uh, by force, uh, because of his mother's situation, who it's alluded to his mother is, um, is a prostitute, a, a sex worker, I should say. Um, and that's how, you know, uh, he was conceived, uh, so to escape that, to escape that kind of environment, he's taken to his father. And uh, so it, it's a lot for him to adjust, a big adjustment. But um, 
I, I, I like um, how the relationship develops after he becomes someone who writes down these rules. And um, the rules themselves, um, pretty typical rules of someone who's, you know, growing up in a, in a household that th the father or the parent wants him to do well. Um, and, um, you know, this is, of course, very ironic because um, his father, of course, he ultimately finds out, as I had mentioned, um, it isn't like some kind of white knight, right? I mean, he's someone who, you know, does this dirty business, launders money. And, um, um, but, the, you know, the rules themselves on, on 79, you know, they're five at first and then he, he uh, this is the whole idea of um, him being the rule follower is make straight A's, clean the bathroom, the kitchen, go to church on Sundays, despite the fact that he mentions his father is not religious uh, or at least doesn't go to church. Uh, never go into his room and don't lose the key. Uh, and so he, from that, he builds, you know, this budding relationship where uh, his father is um, very elusive and evasive. And there's not mu that much bonding that goes on between them because I think his father, and this is what may really gets me about his story, is like he wants him to protect them. But the irony is, you know, if you all have seen Breaking Bad, you know, just like Walter White, that if you get in a circle, you're going to be, you, you could become uh, targeted, you know, by the cartels. And so it's the irony that, the dramatic irony that he's unable to tell his son, you know, um, because if he does, right, it's the, the idea of the curse of knowledge uh, that comes from that. Um, but there's a really uh, touchy moment where, um, you know, his father beats a howl out of him. Um, because he, he, he tried drugs, right? And it really shows the kind of father he was. And, of course, it's, it's very hypocritical, right? Well, where did he get these drugs? Where did he have access to them, right? <laughs> yeah. At yeah. their house. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that was the whole one, one of the rules, right? But, um, you know, despite all that, you know, I mean, that doesn't excuse the, the domestic violence. But, mm -hmm. you know, after that, on page... Um, 98, uh, you know, they end up making up, right? And so there's this moment where um, his father tells him here on 98, uh, he said as he handed me a beer, have a beer with your old man. Uh, and so to me, this is that moment where, um, you know, it's just sharing a beer together, a drink together, right? That clearly shows um, how his father now sees him as someone who has grown into a man and uh, someone who can he can talk to openly uh, to some degree, you know, and um, um, it goes from there, you know, because after that, you know, um, they kind of start joking more about drinking and things like that. Um, but it's also um, um, uh, he is able to mold his son into someone who is unlike him. You know, because he ends up going to Georgetown, which is a Jesuit university that I've seen and it's in person and it's a beautiful university uh, there in, in Washington, D.C. And um, um, and yet um, his father on his part, you know, things don't end well for him.
Mm-hmm. Um, but my passage was at the very end. So I don't know if you guys had um, a one before that. I like the idea of worrying as a sickness that he kind of describes it as. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to find it. You mean for Max? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, on page 87, I think this is the second time they talk on it, hmm. um, but I think, like, oh, <laughs> so this one is kind of like how he goes more in depth of it. It says, he didn't come back for a few days, but by then he had gotten me a cell phone so I could call or text him if I got too worried. He said people who were worriers never changed. You can't help it, he said. He made it sound like worrying was a sickness. Mm-hmm. And so I really liked that one because it kind of is, not really, but kind of in the sense that once you start worrying, you don't stop until you know that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of just wonders where his dad goes and he wants to make sure that he's okay. Yeah, there was a... It's, it, that's actually interesting. That's what I ended up fighting is he... His worry for his father becomes bad because, you know, even though his father early mm-hmm. on is more, you know, selling and later towards the end he starts using and mm-hmm. that's that he's, he recognizes that. And that's when they have this moment where he tries to express his interest in his father says, you don't, you haven't earned that right yet. Punches him, right? And, yeah. And um, mm-hmm. obviously um, that doesn't really change much because his father does end up like withering away mm-hmm. to his death. Yeah. And uh, it's also a role reversal, right? Because, um, you know, um, of course, the, the the boy here, right, shouldn't be worrying about his father, right? Yeah. It should be the other way around. And so it, it does kind of show, it, I see this story as um, representing an evolution for Nick, uh, I, I mean, for Max, Um of someone who uh, is the rule follower and ultimately becomes uh, the rule maker, uh, because of how, mm. you know, th- those, you know, the tables turn, right? It's like um, Obi Wan and Darth Vader, right? The this, the learner becomes the master kind of thing. Mm. Um, Richie, was there another one that you wanted to <coughs> highlight from this one? Um, yeah, but even when you were just saying that, that reminded me also like with the whole texting thing. When his father would disappear, worry him, and he would just text back, I like women in this very, like, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of laughed at it. It was a dark moment, but when he kind of disappeared for a while and his, his dad was trying to get hold of him, and he said the same thing, mm-hmm. I like women. And yeah. that was kind of him giving a taste of his own medicine, but kind of being cheeky, mm-hmm. kind of I think made him laugh a little. But the one, one thing that actually did uh, resonate with me is, again, thinking how everything's connected. Um, he's riding the bus. This is a. Uh, you start. I mean, it starts on page ninety, when they're talking about the violence in Wadis, but it goes into ninety one. And he uh, <clears throat> he just kind of goes through this these thoughts here, um, and thinking about you know the complacency of just this drug culture and its tie into the violence. And so, at the top of page ninety, sorry, I totally said that wrong. Yeah, page ninety. I drifted away from their conversations. Uh, conversa- Again, this is the women talking about the violence in Juarez. <clears throat> Wondering what it would be like to take a gun to someone's head, to kidnap someone, to torture a man. 
what would it be like to cut someone's hands off? I knew there was a listserv that counted the bodies because I had joined that listserv. It was all about the dead bodies. <clears throat> the thing was that the bodies didn't have names. Sometimes I made up names for them. I had a whole list of names. This whole thing, I thought, this whole thing was because of men like my father. And so, you know, as I'm reading all these stories, I'm again, I'm just thinking of, of like the threads and the connections and the larger themes. And that's one thing is sometimes how this is all connected, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the drug war, the war on drugs, all this and, and people's involvement from sellers, the culture, culture he grew up in here. And he is a connect, right? So yeah. there's that almost literal connection. Um, yeah, and um, it's um, it, it's it's why I think this story is uh, so interesting because he has to reconcile the love for his dad with what his father really is, you know, behind that curtain. And um, ultimately that downfall, right, you mentioned, right, that um, his father undergoes, you know, the, the, the de-evolution, um, where he ultimately does become addicted. Right. And he's unable to escape that by that mm -hmm. addiction. Um, and, uh, so, you know, kind of fast forwarding, you know, if you guys, um, didn't have any other passages is, um, the, the ending, um, you know, so, Eventually, um, Max is, 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 as I mentioned, in Georgetown. And so in um, section 24 of this story on 100, um, he says, I'm packing a few things and I'm going back home. He's on a respirator. He overdosed. Heroin, meth, I don't know. It all seems so predictable, so inevitable. His attorney called me. You need to come home and see your dad, he said. I'm going back to take him off the respirator. Respirator. I know that's what he would have wanted. At last, I can give him something, something that matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes on and says, I'm holding the rosary he gave me for the, my first communion, the one that belonged to his father. And there's a lot of passing down, you know, that occurs in, in, the, in this collection, right? Uh, whether it's a watch in the first one, in this one, it's a rosary. And... Um, I always told myself I didn't know my father. I sometimes told myself that I hated him. I always told myself that he didn't know me, but that wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. I knew him. I really knew him. He punched me out once, I said, and then I laughed. My father, I whispered, his name was Eddie, not Edward, but Eddie. He was the man who saved my life. That's who he was. And that's how this story ends. And, um, I, I thought it was very uh, powerful how and um, ultimately his father gave him um, rules, gave him a structure for life. You know, he's well set in Georgetown, a prestigious university. And um, uh, despite the fact that, you know, he was very much, of course, uh, doing all these things, right? And it kind of, um, uh, I think it... Um, like I mentioned the connection to Breaking Bad, right? And we all know what happens, well, if you guys have seen it, like what happens with Walter Wyatt and Heisenberg. But in this case, um, Eddie is um, is clearly trying to provide uh, for Max and, and also at the same time keeping far away from that. And so that moment where he's on that respirator, 
And there's that idea that, you know, he gave, he saved my life because of the way he was tough on me and instilled the desire for getting educated, uh, literacy sponsor that we've talked about before. And, um, he, he, you know, on that respirator, right. He, that is his gift that he gives him back. The gift of, um, euthanasia, uh, is the way I interpret it, mm. that he's able to, uh, end his suffering, you know, and, um, the other reason I, I really connected to this story is um, not just because my father was, you know, he wasn't an addict by any means, but, you know, he's very tough on me uh, and also a workaholic, which, you know, worked off on me a little bit. But um, he um, he also ended it in, uh, he also died in a similar way. You know, he was also, um, he fell into a diabetic coma you know, and I remember um, to this day, you know, um, happened about seven years ago that um, I, I, I was at NMSU at the time and I got a call, you know, and uh, I, I was going to have a class. And so, um, you know, uh, my brother was like, you know, our dad's in um, uh, my dad, my, he's brain dead. You know, he just said straight up, you know, <laughs> that's the way my brother is. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, that 40-minute drive from, um, well, f- our drive, you know, from Las Cruces all the way to Juarez was the longest drive of my life, you know, because I, I knew that, um, I knew he was already hospitalized, but to know that, you know, to, to realize that from one day to the next, you know, he goes from being, you know, in a coma to just being uh, just completely brain dead and that they were going to, you know, pull the plug is what ultimately happened is, um, um, you know, the, 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 of course, very tragic, but uh, why I always, you know, this story always hits me because of that. Hmm. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's, uh, that's the thing that brings us together, too, in literature and art. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of, the, like, the saving graces all throughout these, these compilations is the things that, save us and he says at the end right this is the man who saved me Mm -hmm. um in other instances it's it's books it's tv i think that's one of the things that's mentioned the line from one of the stories right if it weren't for movies you know they raised me they saved me you know it's and then there's it's books it's art you have all these characters that want to pursue art or or study english or literature and um these are the things that connect us yeah yeah i mean um and, uh, you know, just like with Max, right, I mean, it's this idea of um, a father that um, you, I mean, you, you know, my father, I think, was a complicated man. And, um, but at the same time, just like Max's father, Eddie, you know, he was also a provider, you mm-hmm. know, and so I, I, I think um, I, I relate a lot to that and this idea that, you know, his suffering ended. Even though I think, you know, there's a stubbornness there that you always kind of think back about, I think. And just like with uh, with Max, I also think bad ab- about, you know, what could I have done, you know. But it's like what's the use in kind of that retrospect, you know, when mm. it is what it is, right? Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know if, if you guys related to anything else from this one. Um, 
or maybe it was, I mean, fathers, I think, you know, in this whole collection, right? You yeah, know, fathers have an interesting place in the collection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And family, I think, in general. Mm -hmm. uh, was there anything else we wanted to plug? Um, was there anything else you wanted to say, though? On the last story? Yeah. Mm, I mean, it does remind me a little bit of my dad. Um, the whole idea of rules and you either have to do this or you're not going to have anything mm. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it really does shape you to be like a really strong person. Mm -hmm. um, a tough love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, it kind of like the relationship that Max had with his dad, I think is similar to the one I have with my dad. Like I don't see him a lot because mm. we have opposite schedules. He'll be in at work while I'm at home or mm. I'm at school and then I go to work and mm. then I go mm. to an event. Yeah. So we don't really see a lot of each other. But when we do, it's it's really good. And so, like, I felt like that was something that I could relate to into the story. That's good, you know, because um, I, I feel the same way, you know, when my father was alive is uh, I feel I, I've, um, you know, work. I Well, I actually, it was more grad school, mm -hmm. you know, at the time when he was still alive as, and... Um, you know, grad school, of course, you know, Richie, like how, you know, um, time consuming it is and, you know, you make a lot of sacrifices. And and so, um, you know, I always I had to move to El Paso as well, because just like in this book, you know, the violence and what is became such that, you know, uh, I, in grad school, right, it's evening classes. Right. So yeah. I would get out at nine and I remember, you know, running to try to catch the bus because mm -hmm. I, I there was a time where I didn't have a car. And uh, so I was taking a bus to Juarez and, you know, sometimes uh, no one was there to pick me up uh, because, you know, like I said, we didn't have a car for some time. And so, you know, I, I was walking home and, of course, at that time, you know, it was dangerous to be out at night in that way. And it was maybe like an hour long walk from the bridge to my house, uh, my, my parents' house, I should say. And um, so... Um, yeah, there's those times where I think back to, you know, I wish I could have just spent more time with him. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, he was a hard ass, just like uh, Eddie was, you know, but I think behind all that veil of tough love, you know, there is that um, um, he ultimately wanted the best for me. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so th th that, that kind of relationship, you know, where it's, it's a little complicated and... Um, you know, we, we try to remember the, the best memories instead of instead of focusing too much on, on the negative things. Right on. Thanks for joining us in our discussion on Everything Begins and Ends at the Kentucky Club by Ben Sainz. Join us on our next episode as we continue this discussion. And if you haven't read it, we hope we inspire you to pick up a copy. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at literallyliterary.ep.